<clears throat> COVID-19, oh, COVID-19, whoa, whoa, COVID-19, 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 I'm David Torcivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop them. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. And I guess it certainly does feel broken right now, Daniel, maybe more than usual. And I think the big difference here that we're seeing these past couple weeks and months is that it's broken for everybody instead of just people who don't have the limelight, who don't have the attention of the world's media and governments and corporations. And uh, now everyone is feeling the pain that so many people have had to suffer over the past years and decades at the enrichment of a relative few. But uh, that's a lot to start with. And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. We've got a lot to cover today, Daniel, in another chat show. Well, you do bring up a good point, David. It's like, you know, people have been screaming since the 1970s that the world's going to end from runaway climate change unless we do something about it. Um, but people and rich people have still been able to run their companies and fly their private jets. So we haven't really seen much uh, progress on that front, even though indigenous people, communities who are not as well off as the rich on coastlines and small islands everywhere has been impacted negatively by the changing climate. But little coronavirus now impacting everyone, like you said, now it's uh, all hell breaks loose. Uh, well, we're going to get to coronavirus stuff because we have a lot to talk about there. But I think we should start off with a little uh, side interview that we conducted earlier this week um, about a event that was coming up that has since been canceled because things are moving so quickly these days. There's literally no time to keep up with the, the little years of information that happen every 24 hours. But uh, maybe we should start with that, Daniel. What do you think? Sure, let's do it. So we spoke with Jack, who is a listener of the podcast and who is an active member in our Discord. For those of you not in our Discord, go to ashesashes.org, find the community tab at the top and click the Discord invite link. We got a bunch of great people in there having discussions and it's a, it's a great little community. And Jack was active in here and he reached out to us and said, look, uh, I'm part of the Uni Students for Climate Justice in Sydney, Australia. And we've got an event coming up to basically protest this conference. And he had some stories to tell about the bushfires that had just recently occurred in Australia. So let's hear from Jack. So my name is Jack. Um, I'm an environmental science student living in Sydney in Australia. And I'm quite heavily involved in organizing through Uni Students for Climate Justice, which is sort of one of the big environmental activist groups in Australia at the moment organizing some of the protests around the bushfires and generally around sort of environmental related things 
Um, but I also help and organize protests through sort of refugee rights, income inequality, sort of that sort of stuff that comes up. Um, recently, we've had conservative government in, so they've been pushing hard on cracking down on stuff like um, LGBTQI rights. So we've been protesting quite a bit around that. We only just legalized abortion in the state. So we've been, that's sort of a big campaign that we've sort of just started to wrap up because it finally got through. So I'm relatively well involved in that sort of on the ground stuff. Well, right on. Yeah, cool. Uh, I know people probably have a lot of different questions about all those different topics, but there's one thing in particular that we want to focus on today, and we'll let you get to that in just a second. But I'm sure many people are curious about the brush fires in Australia. It really dominated the news cycle for a few months, especially up until uh, when the rains finally came in, and then now it's all coronavirus this, coronavirus that. (laughs) But if you could maybe give us uh, your experiences with the brush fires uh, there in Sydney, as well as people you might know or have experienced uh, in Australia over the past few months. So what was really interesting about this bushfire season in specifically was that it started really early on. So about August, September last year, we started having some sort of bushfires that were getting out of control. Um, it was sort of the end of our winter that the drought was really starting to hit home for sort of this eastern part of Australia. And so we just started to have bushfires way earlier than we usually do. We usually actually have them between sort of the middle of January to February, which is sort of the middle of our summer. Yeah, it, they started really early and they got quite big quite early on. To give reference, like mainland Australia is about the same size as, say, the lower 48 states of the US. If you could sort of put it one on top of the other, mm-hmm. they're roughly similar. So we had sections of the country that sort of the size of Texas that were just under sort of the most catastrophic conditions for bushfires that you could sort of possibly imagine. Like all the signs was telling um, the fire brigades that, some days it'd be, you know, if a fire went off, they just wouldn't have enough staff. They would just stretch way too thin. And that was beginning back in September. And so it was really not until sort of early November, um, early December, that the smoke really started to affect. So north of Sydney to a place called Brisbane, which is about halfway up the coast, those are two of our sort of biggest cities. Um, and there's a ton of bush between here and there, lots of sort of rural, regional towns. And so, so it was the end of 2019 that that area was starting to burn a lot. And you just had a perpetual blanket of smoke across that area for three or four months straight, basically. Um, different areas were burning at different times. The fires would grow. Most importantly, it was burning parts of the areas that aren't really meant to burn. So there's a lot of sort of temperate rainforests in some of the higher peaks and mountains in that area that never are meant to burn. They're sort of some of the oldest continuous temperate rainforest in the world and they were starting to burn and that sort of really sent shivers down a lot of people's spines just at how bad this was and then around yeah around December was when we first started having because of the way the winds worked we first started having the major cities of Sydney just blanketed in smoke smoke was like sort of everywhere in a lot of the northern regional towns but to have like a city of five six million people just covered with you know smoke that was it was raiding some of the worst polluted cities in the world for several weeks at a time and you just got the sense of it just this constant smoke in your nostrils in your when you breathe um for me it was the sun like even on sort of clearer days there was a layer of smoke that would just turn the sunshine this really sickly orange glow so it was very very surreal and that was i think when it started getting a bit more international news 
it died down a little over Christmas and then New Year's seemed to just spark off again. I remember sitting on my phone watching live streams to the south of Sydney where the fires were starting to build up there. The north, northern areas had sort of died down a bit and they got those under control. But the south of Sydney, the fires started to develop in like massive ways and just get completely out of control. And then you had the videos of people escaping at these regional towns, which are now flooded at the moment because it's our summertime and these southern coastal towns get a ton of tourists and that's sort of their main economy for the year. I think something like 70% of the money they make is in those towns is from tourism and that's during the summer period. So you just had a ton of people just on the beaches as like the towns around them just came up in smoke. Um, you had, yeah, 100 meter tall flames and all the resources were just incredibly stretched thin. And a lot of these firefighters have been fighting, not just in North America earlier that year in July, June in the California fires, but have been fighting in Australia since September. So we just, by that stage, we were already completely exhausted as a unit. In between that, it was revealed that our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, had been on holiday in Hawaii. And um, so the fury kind of really turned on him. And then sort of the end of January to the start of February, when before the rain started, the fires just sort of escalated. They escalated a lot around our capital, Canberra, which is sort of, it's a city in the middle of the bush. It's relatively lovely, but it's where basically all the politicians and the um, parliament house and the heads of like the laws and stuff, it's, it's all there. And um, there were just many, many shots of just the surrounding hills just covered in bushfires. It looked sort of very apocalyptic. And it wasn't just the Eastern coast. It had parts in South Australia, across in Western Australia near Perth. So it was just the entire country was really on fire. Obviously the desert part in the middle wasn't, but um, every, everything was on fire and our resources were stretched thin from the very beginning and then it lasted for that long. We had school closures and at one point, because of the way Sydney sort of situated, surrounded by the ocean on one side and then almost bushland on every other side, you had at one point only two roads out of Sydney because the rest were blocked by bushfires. So it was really very strange. It was a sort of a weird way to enter the 2020s. <laughs> um, uh, the coronavirus is sort of kicking off a little bit, but it was mainly the bushfires, which is in our face the whole time. And yeah, it kind of had to get used to just smelling and breathing smoke every day. So that was sort of the experience, day-to-day life, at least from Sydney. I, I didn't get to travel out. I really wanted to. I had this, these holidays, I'd wanted to take some friends and go camping, but all the national parks were closed. Most of the roads were closed. Even if you got to a regional center, they were basically telling one not to go because they just didn't know when the next fire would start or the prediction maps for where fires were. There was no way they could contain all of them. So politically that's when it really started to turn what was Scott Morrison going overseas. And I think that a lot of climate change politics and bushfire politics, I guess, has dominated Australia for almost over a decade now. We've had lost prime ministers over legislating carbon taxes. We've had climate change has sort of been this big political issue that we can't seem to get over. But this specifically sort of brought it all to a forefront because you could just dig up all these old studies from decades ago about these specific parts of Australia are going to have increased temperatures, increased um, bushfire danger, decreased humidity, you know, very specific. And um, early last year as well, a bunch of the, the fire chiefs in Australia, so the heads of the, all the firefighting departments, met and wanted to meet the Prime Minister to discuss about this coming fire season because they all knew, according to the maps, according to what the, the sort of meteorology organisations were telling him, this, this year is going to be really bad. And he just did not meet with them. So to fuck off on holiday and then 
have that all happen. It was real sort of slap in the face and you had all the famous videos of firefighters <laughs> telling some prime minister to go, go and get effed. Um, it was pretty funny. And then when we started to call some protests in the summer, I mean, there's not many of us and no one else is calling them as well. Um, the major green party here, which are usually pretty good on environmental issues, didn't really do anything regarding some sort of political action. And so it was basically a bunch of sort of the radical left of the environment movement calling protests. And we called, in some cases, 60,000 people into the streets in Sydney. In Victoria, we had 30,000. And that was just after they had a bunch of rain. And the police were telling them not to go out because, you know, oh, you'll take us away from firefighting duties, which police don't do. So it was all this political pressure to keep this quiet and keep this under wraps and, you know, don't politicize this issue. But it was really a point where you had to because it was such a political issue due to the circumstances surrounding it. So, yeah, it was definitely a weird way to start the 2020s, but I think it really highlighted the situation here in Australia. Well, you have kind of an interesting perspective in that you're not only an Australian citizen living among these brush fires, but also an environmental science student. So could you maybe speak to your experience of the brush fires, not just as somebody living in the middle of it, but as somebody who is studying the environment, who may be experienced in the uh, local environments and bioregions that were affected by these fires? Again, it's another one of those points where Australia does experience bushfires. It's a natural part of our landscape in the sense that certain trees and certain um, geographies need fire to germinate. A lot of the trees, like our eucalyptus trees, their oils are really, really fire. Like they basically burn on fire for ages when you put them on. So in some senses, you need fire. And that was actually what a lot of the Indigenous Aboriginal Australians used. They used small fires, clear out the undergrowth, and they used it quite a lot to shape the land. But what you don't want is where whole parts of the country are now turning super dry. And obviously, the things that replace them, you can't just plant a bunch of trees because it needs to be the right trees for the right areas. So unfortunately, what happens is, so a lot more of the dry eucalyptus trees are getting planted more than, say, the more rainforest type ones. So a large parts of this country are now becoming just even more flammable. And yeah, so it, it's a thing, yeah, we do experience bushfires, but they should never be at this scale and burning for this long and just, you know, utterly destroying the areas. Obviously now we're having some regermination, which is sort of cool you through these blackened landscapes and you're seeing the seeds come through and some of the trees redevelop. But it should never be at that scale where it just incinerates over, you know, a billion. I was seeing some statistics around like a billion animals just gone because of this and a lot of them endangered or um, near extinction like koalas and platypus that are only found in Australia. So coming from an environmental student, you know, you, you study all this in school and you're learning about it and you're doing your projects on it and you sort of know what's coming, especially with climate change. And then you just see it happening in front of you. To have that all play out, um, despite that knowledge you have, it's it really is infuriating. So I think that's what brought a lot of people out. It was just it was this frustration that we actually know what we have to do. We have the ability to fix it, but we just won't because the system won't let us, and the politicians won't let us. I, I mean, it's so interesting because we did an episode on the wildfires in California and in North America generally a while back, and you know, so many of these same concepts came up where like indigenous people have been using small fires for thousands of years to control and, you know, help balance these ecosystems. But because of our need to develop, we mismanage the forest because we try to suppress every fire, fuel builds up, 
the trees are not at a healthy state. And, you know, even we talked about eucalyptus trees in California originating from uh, Australia, like in the 1700s, that have now grown to maturity and causing problems because of that flammable oil. Yeah, yeah. But I think, too, there's a couple of moving parts here when it comes to the politics, because you have the local political issues of, well, we don't want to impede tourism, we don't want to impede development, which leads to the kind of mismanagement on the, on the ground. But then you have the ignoring the systemic climate change that these fires are contributing to, but then, you know, climate change being the catalyst for more explosive fires too. So speaking about the outrage, maybe you could speak to some of the organizing you're doing and coming up to kind of address maybe the, the political failings at different angles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it really, I think, has brought to light sort of the political failure of sort of the major ruling parties um, in Australia just because of their inaction over this long amount of time. The extreme circumstances of this bushfire crisis from what I laid out about knowing about what was going to happen and all that, but also the political fallout of that. A lot of these places, you know, they, they sign up their land insurance and everything like that in case of bushfires, in case of all this. And, you know, you work your, your life knowing that, okay, at least I have insurance on this property if, if um, you know, it goes up in bushfires. But what's come out of that is sort of the failures of the system to, to follow up on that. So a lot of the insurance companies, they have very specific um, loopholes about what determines whether your property was affected by fire. Some of it is, oh, your, your property has to be literally burnt to the ground to be able to be considered coming under insurance. It has to have had a minimum distance from flames. All these different sort of caveats that get insurance companies out of the way. In fact, a lot of places at the moment, sadly, is a lot of these towns that were just destroyed, people are still living in their tents in the ruins of their house. And it's been, you know, two, three months since that's happened. Um, there's been no federal assistance. A lot of these places, even all that massive amount of money that was sort of a testament to how people want to help in these situations. We had that comedian raise $50 million, had all these companies and organizations raising a ton of money to send towards these people who need it but none of it's actually gone through a lot of the times it's it's just people driving from one town to another delivering food or self-organizing in their own town which is now just a bunch of tents yeah so it's just this complete collapse of of a state in a sense and so it, i think it's still going to burn away as as much as coronavirus is going to come here and sweep away there was there's just still an utter disbelief at what's just happened so we're, as an environmental, as uni students for climate justice, we're trying to, you know, get people around this and get some political action around this. Um, yeah, during the bushfire season, when we had smoke in the city, that you basically had to wear masks to breathe in. But obviously the masks were never provided or they were sold out almost immediately. Um, we had, yeah, 50,000 people come out into the streets after like a week's notice. I remember um, leafletting and putting up posters and remember, because we titled the, the march Sax ScoMo, ScoMo being the short nickname for Scott Morrison, our prime minister. And I remember just getting a lot of people going, yeah, you know, screw that guy. He left us to dust. He went off on holiday. He knew this was coming and he's, all he's done is cut budgets for firefighting units. So the political, there's definitely like a real fury, at least seething away. And it was definitely brought to the forefront during the fires. In fact, and I'll lead it on to my next point now is... is Coming up this month on the 23rd and 24th of March, there's actually a mining conference in the middle of Sydney being held. It's called the Future of Mining Conference. 
So a month after we've had the worst bushfire season in our history, you've got all these wonderful companies from around the world and in Australia, some of the worst emitters of climate pollution. There's companies that own the most toxic mines in the US, most toxic mines in China. Some of the most, they're, they're giving, you know, big speeches on how do we improve our image as a mining company? You know, oh, what's this new development in the Philippines where we're actually sort of undergoing a bunch of ripping out indigenous legislation and screwing over Filipino workers. So it's, it's almost like the worst of the worst climate criminals are coming together and having a lovely little conference. And not just in Sydney, but in one of the most high-praising hotels, the Sofitel, which was right in the center of Sydney, surrounded by all the major banks and fossil fuel company um, headquarters. So we as Uni Student for Climate Justice are going to blockade it because we don't think it's right that after such a horrific fire season that they can just come and plan the future you know, of the destruction of our planet and especially of Australia after what we've just been through. But I just have to comment how, how comedic or ironic I find it that when I go to the future of Mining Australia, you know, March 23rd through 24th event, you know, you talked about mining companies wanting to improve their vision, yet here they are on the front page saying, oh, in light of coronavirus concerns, we're going to continue business as usual, you know, which is, yep. is so interesting. They use that language when, you know, when the IPCC talks about, you know, the risk of climate change, they specifically use, we cannot continue business as usual. So here are these mining companies, you know, extracting from the earth and through their economic uh, activity, contributing to climate change, saying, oh, we're going to continue business as usual and all fly in, you know, despite the risk of infecting everyone with coronavirus, which, I mean, if if there was ever a country that was better prepared for a little bit of a quarantine and preventing the, the infection of this virus, it would be a huge island country completely separate from all countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And gosh, our uh, government's response to the coronavirus is another story in itself. Sound effect fade in. Fast forward, it is now the 19th of March, and the Future of Mining conference has been cancelled. Big surprise, big surprise. Things move quickly in a COVID-19 world. But I am sure it will be rescheduled. And when that happens, if the uni students for climate justice decide to protest, We'll be sure to provide an update on that. So, back to the interview. Well, that brings me to what I think is like my final wrap-up question here. And, and so, you're an activist, you're involved in this, you're a researcher here. So, what, in your opinion, needs to be done, not just from a global scale, but like as an individual actively involved in this world, what can other people do to get involved in fighting for not only just preventing future brush fires at a catastrophic scale, but also the environment as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at least for Australia, what needs to happen on a countrywide level is we just need to shut down the fossil fuel industry. Um, a lot of our major parties have talked about net zero emissions by 2050, but that still includes them being able to export coal and oil and gas, which we as Australia provide a massive amount to the rest of the world, but basically the Saudi Arabia of coal to the rest of the world. So we need to just shut it all down and we need to start building a world where we actually build a world, do the things that make people better and make the planet better. That should be the thing that drives us, not whether the Dow Jones hits 26,000 points or whatever. As an individual, um, I struggled with this for a little bit because I try to take public transport wherever I can and I use my keep cup, take my own lunch, got a compost bin out the back, we're putting solar panels on our roof and I generally take shorter showers. 
what we really need right now is if you care about this issue and if you want to do something about it and you, you're scared about the future, but you also feel really frustrated and wanting to do something about it, join your local environmental campaign in some sense. In Australia, join Uni Students for Climate Justice. They usually, we've got branches, I think, on every main um, university. Or if you just look us up on Facebook, we usually have public open meetings to discuss the planning of these um, events and future rallies. But wherever you are in the world, what we need is more people on the ground protesting against this and blockading these things and actively getting people politically involved. Because as we can see, business as usual is going to keep happening until it stops. And it's only us that can stop it. I, I can go to my uni degree and I can study really, really well and get you know master's in environmental science and have 20 years of experience in that. But as you can see, it doesn't matter how much good information we shout at those in power. They're not going to listen because it doesn't make the money. And I think this last bushfire season in Australia has really clarified that when it was just so clear what should have been done and what preparation should have been made. Um, and it just went the opposite way. And now even afterwards, it's doing the same thing where a lot of that money they even said they would be spending on bushfire relief has actually discovered not really to exist in the budget. So they're just going to keep going. And so what we need is, is to reinvigorate the climate movement and make it big again and make radical action big again. I think it's been really cool that Greta Thunberg's really kicked off the climate movement in the last year or two. And um, in Australia, it's been some awesome, awesome marches and protests in the last year or so around that. And honestly, we just need more people. It would really make a difference if we had a couple more thousand at each event, a couple more thousand putting out leaflets and posters. Because I know a lot of people are really, really concerned about this, but we need to take that concern into action. And yeah, it's probably the best thing I can say about what you can do as an individual is, is get involved, get become an activist, because you need to make those political arguments and you need to take it to the next level. Keep listening to Ashes Ashes. If you're interested in more what <laughs> happens in Australia, I can recommend another really good podcast called Red Flag Radio. It's run by a group I'm part of called Socialist Alternative. Uh, we do a lot of activist work around, again, environmental stuff, but also refugee rights, income inequality, protesting against stuff like when LGBTQI rights are under attack and that sort of thing. And yeah, again, it's a really good way to, to plug into what's happening on the ground and how you can get involved, because I think that's really what we need is just a lot more people like that. And yeah, just keep, keep listening to Ashes Ashes. It's a really great podcast. Um, it's been one of my favorite podcasts to listen to in the last couple of years, and it's really pushed me to do what I do now, becoming an activist and keeping up to date with the science stuff, because I just had a lot of thoughts in my head, and I was always getting frustrated because I felt like I wasn't doing anything about it, and now I am, and now I'm a lot more invigorated. So, yeah, that's all I have to say. Thanks so much, um, Daniel and David, for having me on. Well, thank you, Jack. Uh, that's inspiring for me to hear. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, Jack, uh, keep us updated if the conference gets rescheduled and the uni students for climate justice decide to do another blockade, another protest, let us know and best of luck in all your efforts. For me, David, I think the bushfires are interesting just because it kind of highlights how the impacts of climate change really do uh, exemplify the problems that are at the heart of our political and economic systems, where at the local level, you have the complete denial of climate change, right? and the complete unwillingness from political leadership to change course of our economy in any way, shape, or form to prevent the acceleration of this process that's destroying the world, 
And so when these events like wildfires and explosive events happen that wreck the economy and, and put people in danger, these leaders have put themselves in a box where they have to pretend like it's not part of this systemic problem because then that would, that would cause them to lose face and they'd have to admit that they've been lying for this long period of time and they would be forced to make a correction change, which no one in power wants to do. But, but this process of denial is also encouraging these events in the first place, where it's not just the denial of climate change that leads to things like uh, explosive wildfires, megafires, and bushfires, but it's also the way our economy has to expand. And we do that by developing at extreme densities. We move into these forests. We disrupt natural fire patterns that indigenous people have been doing for thousands of years, as Jack mentioned, all so that we can maximize our short-term profit. Yeah, and it's always been business as usual, business as usual, just like that mining conference was supposed to be. But now that people are faced with this immediate existential threat instead of something that might threaten them in a decade or their children or their children's children, where they can't imagine this moment of actual reckoning with death like you do in a pandemic situation, now suddenly everybody can't wait to change everything about their economy, the way that they live their lives. And we are in that right now. So we we capped off last week talking about how that can be a source of hope. And uh, we are now another week further into this worldwide pandemic unfolding. And for a lot of us, I know for me personally, Daniel, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, maybe yourself as well, uh, this reality is beginning to hit home more and more. And uh, it, it's interesting. There's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, there's obviously some scary stuff. But there's some hopeful things and uh, a lot of stuff in between. So maybe we can start this conversation with you telling me a little bit about what things are like up in Massachusetts, which is one of the areas with uh, more cases than a lot of parts of the country. Um, it's not a New York, which I think is maybe just leading cases in the United States at this point. But uh, but Massachusetts has its own wide uh, range of, of infections, especially in Boston and the areas around that. So have you noticed any changes? What's going on over there? You're in a more rural area than I am in the middle of New York City. So what is what is life for Daniel Forkner been like the past week? Life for Daniel Forkner the past week is why I'm struggling to get through this episode so much, David, because I just feel, I feel exhausted, um, I'm a little stressed, and mentally I'm just really not there. And I don't know, it, it's been a little bit of a whirlwind, you know, going to work every day and, and it's like no one can really focus because the questions are what's going to happen, we know something's happening, we don't know what. And then, like you said, I'm, I'm kind of in a rural area, so most of the anxiety that people around me, and myself included, have been feeling is just it's just in the air, you know, I think because the way our society operates in isolation and atomization, I think we all go home and we just look at our phones and we read the headlines and then we go out in public and we're, we're suspicious and we're nervous and then we're not really talking as much. So it just adds to this air of anxiety. But there are some very real changes that have taken place. Um, my girlfriend, for example, who's a graduate student at a university uh, in the city, all universities are shut down. Uh, Harvard told their students to get off the campus. They had five days to get off of their campus. So no more student housing. Um, most businesses are now work from home only. Obviously, like a lot of places, we've had runs on grocery stores. Uh, you're not going to find any toilet paper at a Target near me or any other store. 
And personally, I have vacillated a little bit from feeling anxious and then feeling excited or feeling like, hey, why, why am I worried? What's the big deal? You know, no one else seems to be freaking out as much because um, there's, a, you know, it's interesting the atmosphere, you know, the response people have is it always starts with denial. You know, in every single conversation I've had over the past week or two, obviously from doing this show with you, David, I come from a perspective of things are going to be much worse than uh, <laughs> anyone should expect. That's, that's my perspective. So when I have these conversations, it started out as, you know, me asking people, hey, what do you think's going to happen? You think it might, you know, any question you think we'll be working from home. And it always starts with, well, I don't think that that's not going to happen here, you know. Oh, this thing will blow over. And then two days later or 12 hours later, everything changes. But then it, the next question is, do you think um, we're going to have problems getting food or whatever? And people are like, yeah, no, no problems there. And then, you know, we have massive runs on grocery stores or, you know, any number of question that comes up. It's always a little bit of denial that we could possibly be heading down a path that is scary. And, and maybe it's because we, I think my generation, David, you know, us growing up, we didn't have any real systemic traumas, I think. You know, I mean, obviously. Well, we had we had 9-11 and the great financial crisis. Those were those were the two uh, systemic feeling issues that we encountered growing up. Um, obviously, the culture in the United States before and after 9-11 was a dramatic shift. And uh, we grew up in the midst of that, which I'm sure uh, affected our worldview quite a bit. and then. Uh, great financial crisis. We were uh, coming out of high school, entering college right around then. And uh, fortunately, we weren't graduating college at the time, but that absolutely had a, a large effect on a generation of people. Uh, the economy has never really recovered, and our entire generation has had to just beg for the scraps that uh, older generations, wealthier generations have uh, always taken for granted. So we, we have had Systemic issues defining us um, as individuals, as generations, as as nations, and and the world itself. But in terms of something of this magnitude, I don't think the world has seen really anything at, at a global scale since uh, the Second World War. So this is, you know, for most people living today, uncharted territory. Yeah, and I guess that's what I'm kind of comparing to is you know two generations before us, they had you know World War One. Spanish influenza, World War II. I mean, back to back to back, Great Depression. That's more than two generations, right? You have millennials, you have Gen X, you have great, um, you have baby boomers, which are born after World War II. So you're talking greatest generation mm. and silent generation. So four and five generations ago. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, again, as you pointed out at the beginning of the show, it really is a privileged position to even say, oh, we haven't had a dramatic and really big. Uh, systemic trauma in a while because the way our economy works is that it it grinds people up on the bottom and for all the the decades since whatever you know World War Two World War One whatever every decade we've had people who have been exploited and who have been suffering dramatically and I really think that you're right that this moment where everyone is feeling anxious is because it's a, it's a moment that will impact everyone. You know, even the president of the United States is not immune from a virus. Yes, that's very true. And my personal conspiracy theory is that Donald Trump is actually like coronavirus typhoid Mary, 
sort of character going around as like a coronavirus zombie made invincible by the huge amounts of fast food and processed food that he consumes every day. But uh, unfortunate for all of his staff, he's going around infecting them all, uh, getting everybody sick, um, destroying, you know, the Brazilian government and, and eventually giving another week or two the United States government from the inside. He's a secret ally of all of us. So uh, that's my tinfoil hat theory of the day. Now I understand the meaning of the word accelerationism. And David, I think when, when I ask myself, where does the anxiety come from, either that I myself experience uh, am feeling or the people around me, it's really hard to pinpoint because there are so many things that one could be, could be anxious about, right? There's the general feeling of thinking that it's very possible that you're going to get sick from this thing that is looming but knowing that it could be a month out before you feel it, that is really strange, right? I mean, the flu comes around every year, but what are the chances that you get it? It's like 10% or whatever. So you don't ever feel like, oh, I'm definitely going to get this. But then with this thing, at least the message is, well, you're probably going to get it, but it'll happen sometime in the future. Uh, but also it'll take a while, even once you get it to experience. So there's that, but then there's the unknown of how governments are going to react. Are we going to have lockdowns of cities? And going along with that is the kind of anxiousness that I feel because it, it seems like the social responsibility has been placed on us as individuals. Where Where is the central message of should we be at home or should we not? Should we go to restaurants? Should we not? And I as an individual can make that choice, but there's no consensus on it. So there's not really clear messaging about what people should do, how we should behave, and why. So then there's that. But then there's also the things like um, we're on the, the precipice of one of the most, probably the most consequential presidential election the United States has ever had to face. And I, I like calling it the last chance election. Yeah, it's the last chance election. But now that this crisis is going on, how is that going to impact elections? How is that going to impact uh, the current administration's desire to just bring down the hammer on authoritarian rule and just say, you know what, no election this year. I mean, there's so many questions that one could uh, decide to go down the rabbit hole of unproductive, imaginative exercises in pointless uh, anxiety. These are good points, but I, I don't want to say that anxiety itself is inherently harmful because there is value in anxiety uh, to a limited extent. So anxiety is sort of a, a side effect of worrying about the future because you aren't sure what's going to happen and then thinking through those various possibilities. And that action of thinking through possibilities and then reacting to them before they happen or so you have a plan or you're you're mitigating the, the events that can lead to those is important. You know, that is an evolutionary thing we've been doing. Uh, animals do it, we do it. it. That is important. The problem is when this anxiety spins out of control and when you're powerless in this this moment. And that is, I think, a key reason why anxiety in particular in our modern day uh, is such a problem for so many people. And we've talked on the show about uh, loneliness especially, and now as we're in this conversation culturally about social distancing, which a lot of people seem to take as complete social isolation, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment. But this capability for anxiety to spin out of control and, and really take control of people's lives in a negative way is, is very real and something we need to watch out for. So there are things to worry about, but at the same time, there's a lot that can be done for a change. And uh, for a lot of people that I've talked to, there's actually sort of a nice clarity in, in 
a specific crisis like this that you can point to and say this is the threat. Yes. Uh, because it, it gives you the ability and the agency for the first time in, in a long time to, as an individual, be able to act in a positive way, not just for yourself, but as an individual within a larger society and to make a difference in a positive way. And that's really empowering because we haven't had that ability in ages. I, I mean, yeah, you know, you can do things in your immediate community and that's something we're always talking about. And it's a great way to get some of that agency back in your day-to-day -day life before or after this crisis came and, and will disappear. But uh, it's tough for a lot of people. That's a big jump to take. But now that you're forced to do that in your immediate life, uh, we're seeing for the first time a lot of people getting slapped awake there. There's a siren going off. Maybe leave this part in here, Daniel. For those of you who don't know, I live about two blocks from a hospital. I live one block from a fire station. And so uh, we are constantly dealing with sirens during recording, and I usually have to stop. But I, I want to comment on it just, just right now briefly because uh, New York State just had its first coronavirus death, and it was in my hospital two blocks away from my house. So that's the moment for me when it like really came home to like a personal thing. Um, and I hope it, mm. it doesn't get worse than that. But um, to get back to my point here, it, it, agency is, is valuable. And um, people are waking up for the first time and realizing that when you have power as an individual in something specific and as large as this, then you can expand that power into all sorts of aspects of your life, even beyond this. And it's been interesting watching on on Twitter, on in the conversations of real life, people realizing that a lot of stuff they took for granted as as you know, this is the way things are, the status quo, aren't the status quo for any reason except for the fact that they are, and that it benefits typically a very small number of people who have a lot of power uh, because of money or, or political actions. And so now that all of that stuff is thrown into chaos, um, I, I have it on the screen right now on the side, I'm watching the stock market futures crash at the moment. Um, when, when economically we have no idea what's going on, political power is, is nobody knows who's in charge. Everybody's doing a bad job. Uh, states are competing with cities, competing with the federal government. No one seems to be cooperating. The systems that we have taken for granted as the foundations for power in this nation are being torn asunder by the cultural calamity that is pandemic. And we are seeing people responding to this in a way that says, hey, wait a second, all this stuff I thought was real, all this stuff that people have been telling me for so long is actually bullshit. They said that we can't get better insurance. They said we're always going to have to pay this much. But all of a sudden, the government, whether it's the state level or the federal, says, oh, you don't have to pay co-pays on these types of things or all treatment for this is going to be covered. And, and it just is done instantly. There's no like battle in Congress about it. There's no uh, people saying, oh, we have to figure out the budget. How are we going to pay for this? It's just done. When it comes down to a, a crisis that threatens a system that benefits these people, all of a sudden, all the things they told us aren't possible. A better insurance system, for example, suddenly are. In California today, they're announcing that they're uh, doing a huge program to help the homeless people who are some of the most vulnerable for coronavirus, and in part because they're out in the streets without um, you know, protection, their immune systems are compromised by being exposed to the elements, but also they're oftentimes in, in close quarters that, that aren't separated, these shanty towns. Well, almost overnight, the governor has announced that they're going to solve the homeless program. They are seizing and purchasing hotels, motels, and moving all these people into them in order to give them somewhere safe and sterile to live. And this is something they told us for years was never possible because it was too expensive. But now, now that the economic system is threatened, now that the state is threatened, that's it. It's fixed. Problem is fixed. This happens over 
and over and over again. And, and a lot of people are waking up and saying, wait a second, all this stuff that they said life has to be like shit is all a lie. The stimulus programs that are coming all around the world right now, things that are paying rent, things that are paying mortgage, things that are paying basically UBI for not working, for, for being socially responsible, are coming magically without any sort of problems or battles, for the most part, in, in various parliamentary and, and, and political systems around the world. This is happening. All this stuff that was denied to us have appeared in, in, in two weeks. We're accidentally building the uh, semi-social uh, democratic and, and, and quasi-socialist systems that people have been fighting literally with their lives for uh, for decades, uh, for hundreds of years in some places, and it's happening almost instantly. And it's happening so easily, and I think we should take heart in that, and, and we should encourage people to, to look at these systems and say, you know, you know what they said, how you said this was impossible? Well, look, now it is. You know what they said, how they could never give us that? Well, now they have. So uh, take heart in that. Have these conversations with people because this is a wake-up sign for a lot of people who are willfully ignorant about what is possible when people need something done. And the difference, like we pointed out in the beginning of the show, is that the people who need something done aren't anymore just the poor and the oppressed and the most needy, but it is the people who benefit the most from these systems, the rich and the powerful, who now see the systems that enable them to have that wealth and have that power start crumbling. And suddenly they scramble to try and retain that power any way they can. So if a virus can put that pressure on that type of system and cause this type of reaction in a matter of days, then imagine what a organized working class around the world could do. Because ultimately what is threatening this, yes, partially is the loss of life, the pressure on healthcare systems, but also the economic collapse. And that's what's really driving a lot of these major changes. And that economic collapse can also be caused by the individuals in that economic workforce, the workers of the world. The pressure that you and I and everyone else has when collected, either by governmental decree or by the willful solidarity of individuals around the world, can pressure these changes that so many people thought were impossible, that were denied for us, and that they told us we would never have. So, I mean, that's a little bit of hope to start this conversation. But Daniel, I also want to talk about my experiences here in New York City, because we've sort of become the epicenter of infections here in the United States, and that's partially because it's a dense, large city. There's 8 million documented people here. There's probably many more who are undocumented. Uh, we have one of the higher densities of individuals in the United States. So it's a perfect breeding ground for this type of virus, especially with the businesses, the tourists coming from all around the world. And uh, we've seen infections start to explode, especially as testing is ramping up. And I think we're going to see these numbers just really go crazy over the next week. I imagine that uh, by Friday or, or certainly by Monday that New York will start introducing um, some, some quarantine-like laws. Um, a semi-martial law around the city. And um, the life here at this point is, is interesting because New York is a destination for people all around the world, but also for its residents because of the many cultural offerings it has. The shows, the museums, the uh, performances, uh, the shopping for many people. This week, over the course of the week, basically all of this has shut down. Broadway is shut down. All, most all musical performances are shut down. All the major museums are shut down and the smaller ones are following. Uh, the major brands, the retail brands of America, um, makeup brands, uh, fashion brands, Nike, 
uh, technology brands, Apple, they've all closed their stores and they're planning on closing them indefinitely for the future. So these reasons for people coming to New York, experiencing, quote unquote, the city, are all being taken away. And so we're left with what's basically just a very dense place that people live and are increasingly working from home. So it's kind of strange to be here where you always have these these multitude of options of going out and experiencing different things taken away from you. And it's not too bad right now. I mean, the weather's finally nice. We're going out and walking in parks and stuff. But uh, we'll see what happens as the restaurants and bars are forced to close in the coming uh, days and weeks. And I imagine that'll happen sooner rather than later, especially in bars, which I assume will be a 10 p.m. ban um, after that. Bars are going to close. And we'll talk about the economic effects in a second. But they already did that in New Jersey. Right, which, which is Hoboken, um, introduces that on Monday. And I, um, I very strongly assume New York will follow, especially after this weekend. Uh, we passed uh, laws saying that bars and restaurants are limited to 50% of their capacity, but a lot of places aren't honoring that. And especially considering the fact that St. Patrick's Day is on Tuesday. And for those of you listening, we recorded this on Sunday, uh, March 15th. And I think it's important to have the date because things are advancing so rapidly. Um, I think after St. Patrick's Day, everything's going to be locked down. So a lot of stuff happening here, but our grocery stores are full. I, I went and bought some stuff the other day, and uh, we have plenty of toilet paper, uh, plenty of frozen food, uh, plenty of uh, the, the things that people elsewhere are claiming you can't find. But of course, I live in a less wealthy part of the, the, the city. I have several grocery stores around me. Food Bazaar, Key Food, Associated Grocery Marks. At this point, I've listed enough stuff. I feel like all of y'all can triangulate exactly where I live. But in the, the more wealthy parts of the city, where people shop at Whole Foods and, and Trader Joe's, those shit are picked over. And those people are, uh, it's chaos there. And I would be afraid to shop those places because those shoppers are mean. And uh, they want to get their, their frozen goodies and their Amy's frozen burritos and whatever. So... I think it's kind of telling that my grocery store with much lower income residents, a lot of whom have lived in this neighborhood for decades, are very friendly. Everyone's helping each other. We're like, oh, you know, would you need anything here? Let me get that for you. And then meanwhile, it's like in the rich parts of town, they're like, I'll fucking gut you if you take this toilet paper. Um, but uh, I think that's something we're finding everywhere. That's the boomer mentality. Yes. And it, it's an important point because there's a lot of boomer doomer. Um, boomer remover, all these these memes going around about boomers. And uh, I just want to remind everybody, boomer is not a generational tag in these types of discussions, but a mindset. The boomer mindset of entitlement, of I've got mine, fuck you. And, and, and oftentimes tied with that, a uh, class as well of, of people who have been able to accumulate more wealth by living during the best times um, when things were easy. And uh, well, while their 401ks and pensions have been destroyed over the past week or so, um, they are still fabulously wealthy compared to the vast majority of the rest of us. But are you working from home, Daniel? I know a lot of businesses and companies are transitioning to this work from home format, um, which I enjoy. I've been set up to do remote work for years, and I do a lot of remote work from uh, Los Angeles, from all around the country here in my New York facility. We record this podcast remote. And I've been recently in a lot of my work here in New York, I've been forced to go into, but basically all of the companies now are trying to get me to work remote and I'm happy to, but it's a, it's a hard adjustment for, for some of them. But have you done this yet? Well, what's your experience? 
So tomorrow for me is Monday, and I think I plan to just go in briefly. Uh, most of the office will be working from home, but again, it's it's a small organization, and it's kind of just up to us to decide. So it kind of leaves me having to make that decision for myself, mainly to be responsible. I want to be responsible to the people around me. I want to be, you know, I don't want to be contributing to the spread of anything. And the issue is further complicated for me because I work for an organization that is a food justice organization whose mission is to, you know, connect communities to healthy food who otherwise don't have access to it. So, you know, we happen to work in a lot of food desert communities where these are people who, under normal circumstances, are food insecure. They lack basic transportation. They don't have grocery stores. They live in a situation where it is very difficult, both in terms of access and affordability, to eat good food or, or food at all. Um, I mean, some of the students in the areas we serve, literally their last meal for the week is on Friday where their school lunch, and then the next meal is Monday when they go back to school. So these are the type of communities we're working with. And as an organization, our question is, isn't this a time more than ever where we should be providing food for people. I mean, we coordinate with food banks. We've been uh, calling people at the hospital that we know who can help divert funds to acquire food in bulk. And then we're trying to figure out how are we going to deliver this and distribute it in these communities. And so as an individual, it's, you know, the question for me is, do I go into work? Do I not go into work? Is what is, how does that impact possibly the people around me when I come home? But also as an organization, thinking about you know seeing a situation play out where there are no services available to these people who desperately need them and we potentially have a way to help them how do we go about that in a safe and responsible way <laughs> and then it, it's further complicated by the fact that by nature you know working in food desert communities a majority of the population we serve just happens to be older adults people who are the most at risk for the consequences of this particular virus. So there's so many, so many questions about what is the socially responsible thing to do, both me as an individual, but as you know, even larger as an organization. Well, let's talk about social responsibility for a second, because I think that's a good topic and something worth talking about here. Because there's a lot of Americans that for the first time in their lives are having to come to terms with the fact that uh, they don't live their life just for themselves, which is the shining beacon of American uh, culture. The American exceptionalism alt is tied up in this where you are what's most important, you know, get yours, fuck everyone else. And, uh, you know, hustle, hustle, grind, get that, that money. And then, um, you know, one day if you're wealthy, you can turn around and give that back to people as a thank you for getting you up to that point. You know, this effective altruism sort of mindset, but that is sort of America in a nutshell. And, and a lot of people, of course, never get to that wealthy part. The vast majority don't, but they always think that they could. And that's what's important in driving this. And it drives a lot of selfish behavior at the same time where they say, oh, you know, why would I do something out of, out of I'm not going to get sick. I'm, if I do get sick, I'm young. It's not going to matter to me. I can fly across the country right now for $40. So I'm going to go to New Orleans for St. Patrick's Day and, uh, you know, fuck y'all. I'll get trashed and then fly home. And if somebody gets sick, they're, you know, it's a, old person that I don't know. So whatever, but it's not like I'm sick and I'm going to hang out with people who aren't sick. So what's the issue? Well, obviously there's a lot of, uh, naivete and ignorance in that sort of mindset. 
um, especially with a disease, once again, that can take 7 to 14 days or even longer than that until you are fully infected and showing symptoms. But during that entire time, you can be spreading the disease to many people, many people who are oftentimes at high risk and not necessarily just old people, um, but people who are immunocompromised, people who have various uh, health issues, asthma, diabetes, heart conditions, which can exist and happen at any age. And you could look at somebody, think that they would be totally fine, but uh, because of some exposure to, say, you know, poisonous gases that they underwent in the military in Afghanistan or something, are at high risk, though they may look healthy and young from the outside. So this is, for a lot of people, a big jump. They haven't made this connection yet. And obviously, I assume and I hope that the people who listen to this show, the people who are active in their communities, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about everyone else. That's a lot of what drives us. In fact, we put a lot of other people's uh, safety and happiness and health above our own, at least our mental health. And that's what drives the actions we do. And it's what's driving a lot of the mutual aid popping up right now, which I'll talk about in a moment. This is what I'm really actually excited about. But for a lot of people, this is something they've never had to do. They've never considered that they're anything more than an individual. And when you start realizing that your actions have consequences, not just for the people immediately around you, but for people you've never met. You know, I get someone sick, they get someone sick, maybe their grandparent, maybe uh, somebody, a friend of theirs who's immunocompromised, and that person dies. You know, I'm the one who, down this chain, killed that person. And there are some countries who are taking this idea very literally. If you break quarantine, they are going up to charges that might include manslaughter or murder, showing that as an individual, your actions are directly responsible for the health and safety of others. And I hope that as this, it's just a flu crowd finally realizes that it's not just a flu, that many people are dying, that in some countries they're estimating hundreds of thousands or millions of people will die because of their dumb containment ideas. I'm looking at you, UK, and we'll talk about you in a minute. But those people realize that, hey, you know, I'm not just an individual. I'm somebody who lives in a larger culture, I'm somebody who lives in a society, I'm somebody who lives in an economy and a nation. And my actions have influences on people who also live in that. And to take it one step further, and this is maybe wishful thinking, but I hope happens, they realize that, oh, my actions and the actions collectively of those around me influence not just the people that I interact with day to day, not just the people of my country, but people all around the world. When I buy this item, I'm hurting people in developing nations. I'm hurting people that are vulnerable in regions most vulnerable in climate change. I'm hurting future generations, people who haven't even been born yet, and I'm hurting all sorts of living animals, creatures, plants, whatever, all around the world by my actions. I'm a global citizen at that point. And when we can start thinking, actually, like you're part of something larger than you, I think we can start you know, waking people up and moving towards something more proactive. And this is the type of slap in the face that, that really gets that moment going. And once the momentum starts building, then maybe we can actually turn this, this crisis into something great. When you mentioned earlier how for a lot of people this crisis is a wake-up call, I think that's what it's all about. And when I say that part of me has felt excitement in response to all this, I think that's really what it's all about, is that for so long our culture has told us that the only thing that matters is how successfully you can acquire money for yourself and for your family and leave a legacy that you can be proud of as towering over your peers. And for many people, myself included, that's just not an answer that really appeals to us. I, I don't really 
if if that's what life is all about, I don't have a lot of motivation to participate in that path. And as you point out, this crisis represents um, an opportunity. And I really hope that this is an opportunity that we collectively learn from and respond to. Um, there have been other crises that we have not learned from. And as Naomi Klein writes about in terms of shock doctrine capitalism, a lot of crises are opportunities for capitalist expansion. When people lose their homes and home values plummet, or when businesses go under, or when people default. For example, the people who have acquired enough cash to weather the short-term financial burden can then use their cash holdings to purchase up housing, consolidate their wealth even further, and come out of the crisis even stronger in terms of their ability to exploit people. And I hope that that is not where the opportunity is realized in this crisis. I hope that we can finally collectively wake out of this individualistic stupor that we're all in and find a way and a a reason to believe in the importance of community, the importance of supporting one another, and the importance of living a life that, that matters more than just our own individual success, but matters in the sense that our actions will impact not just those immediately around us, but those seven generations from now. And if we can adopt that mindset, that mindset of empathy, solidarity, reciprocity, then we will come out of this crisis much stronger. And that's my hope for the future. That's my hope for all of this. No, exactly, Daniel. This is the exciting moment from here. And um, I want to get into some of the economic precarity stuff in a moment, but uh, I think this is a good jumping off place to talk about what a lot of people are doing, and this is something great for managing this type of anxiety, but also this energy and this free time that a lot of people now have now that they're out of work. And uh, that is the rise of mutual aid networks all around this country. And um, I've been helping develop some of those here in New York City, but also some in LA and other cities. And there are so many people that want to help. And there are people who now have the time to do that. And a lot of people have always been saying, you know, I wish I could do this. I wish I could volunteer. I wish I could help other people. But, you know, I'm so busy just trying to survive myself that it's just too much. But now that people are laid off or forced to, to furlough or, or whatever it is, and maybe it's because a lot of my friends are freelancers and gig workers, especially those in the entertainment industry, uh, we have tons of time to do this kind of work now. And uh, here in New York City, uh, a lot of the activist organizations, um, in DSA, but also local organizations, Ridgewood Senate Union, um, even some of my specific organizations that I'm involved with that, that target a very hyper-specific uh, movement or idea or topic or issue, are banding together using the infrastructure that we have been building out over the past uh, you know, years and, and, and decades in some cases to start building direct mutual aid networks. Uh, these are things that that a small group of friends and I have been trying to to flesh out as part of a disaster relief mutual aid network that is part of the larger uh, New York City DSA. If you're in New York City and and a DSA member or not a DSA member wants to get involved, you know, drop us a line and I can tell you the best way to plug into that contact at ashesashes.org. But uh, people are creating uh, information pamphlets. They're creating uh, sign up sheets. Uh, we have spreadsheets. We have maps that are saying, this is what I have. This is what I'm capable of doing. Um, these are my skills. These are my tools. Uh, you know, everything you could possibly need to know when you're reaching out for help to somebody and, and you can point and say, okay, hey, 
you're going to go here and, and and do this and you're going to do go here and, and do that. You're going to help this person buy groceries. You're going to go fix their door, whatever. And so that's, that's one element of it. But then the second element is something that we talk about all the time on this show is going out and meeting your neighbors. So if you live in an apartment building, do you know your neighbors? Well, now is the time to meet them. Go out, bring them some literature on, on the virus. Say, hey, you know, here's some some critical stuff you might need to know. If you need anything, I'm here. I'm young, I'm healthy. I can go out, buy groceries for you. I'll drop them off outside your door. Um, I, I can go run errands. Do you need me to like pick up medicine? Whatever it is. Now it's a chance to build these sorts of solidarity networks in your immediate community. And, and if you're not in a city, if you're somewhere more rural, uh, that means your, your, your neighborhood in the suburbs. That means your uh, community, if you're, if you're way out in the boonies. This is the time to come together and to start laying the foundation and getting people involved and realizing that their neighbors are out there trying to help them, trying to make this world a better place and giving them the tools and connections to do the same. Because the networks that we build now and the human connections that we build now aren't going to go away when this pandemic goes away. And it will go away at some point. How quickly that happens is up to a lot of questions, uh, economically, um, politically, medically, and culturally. But these real human connections and the networks and relationships and, and changes in ideas and thoughts and ways of seeing the world will be permanent if we do them right. And so now is the time to go out. If you've been hesitating or if you don't know what the, what the next step is, just go out and say, hey, I'm David. Uh, I live right next door. If you need anything, here's my number. Here's my email address. Please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm here for whatever. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. You don't have to do anything more than that. Um, it, it's really easy. And when people are in their most needed moments, they will reach out. And that's, your, that's, that's you changing the world. That's you making a, a, a difference. And that's you connecting directly with somebody so that when their time comes to do the same to someone else, they know how to do it and they know that they can do it and that capability exists in not just themselves, but in the hearts of everyone else around them. So this, once again, is a moment for us to seize and to, just like in the way that people are waking up to the realities of the world that they live in, the fiction world that they thought had to be one way, but now they can see can be any way they can imagine or push for, you can do that on the local level as well. So have these conversations, talk to your neighbors, meet them, and get out and do their. Because right now, this virus is one thing. And the pandemic and the, the disease and social isolation caused by people misunderstanding social distancing is one thing to deal with. And we are dealing with it. You know, wash your hands. Uh, don't cough from people's faces. Wear a mask. Um, if you are sick, quarantine, like we understand that what's harder are these knock on effects. What do you do when your job lays you off? What do you do when you're a bartender and no one comes to the bars? What do you do as a, as a server when restaurants are half empty? What do you do as, as a film worker when all entertainment is frozen? There are hundreds of thousands, millions of jobs that are being put on hold indefinitely right now. And the hope everyone says is, you know, like, oh, we'll just quarantine for 14 days, two weeks, boom, it's over. Crisis averted. I'm sorry, the ship has sailed. That's not going to happen. We're looking at something that is best case, absolute best case scenario, six weeks of disruption, um, at least in terms of uh, the social distancing component. But realistically, I'd estimate three months of dramatic disruption and then years of responding to the economic uh, impacts that we see spiraling out. And there are 
you know, economic plans coming. Um, as, as we record this episode, the Fed has cut rates from 0% to 0.25%. The future markets have responded negatively to this. They've announced $700 billion in a new round of quantitative easing, which is different. So, so earlier this week, we had $1.5 trillion of, of various types of repos put out. They're sort of like uh, short-term loans, varying from days to months. They, in theory, will be paid back at some point. But interestingly, most of the market makers only took a very small amount of those loans available to them, I think about $70 billion, indicating either that there is no liquidity crisis at that point or because of other extraneous financial reasons. And some of them said regulations and some of them also said market pressures prevented them from taking the full amount of money that they would have liked. Whatever it was, as a couple days later, they've announced that they are slashing interest rates to basically 0% and uh, directly buying stocks, bonds, other products worth $700 billion. So this, unlike that, is a direct injection of actual money into the market. And futures are down at this point. And I don't want to talk about momentary stock market things because it varies day to day. But this could raise 50% of student loans in this nation. Uh, this could do a lot of good for a lot of people. Uh, you could pay people thousands of dollars, every adult American, with this money. But instead, they're directing it into the stock markets, indicating either one, you know, corporate bailout, whatever, but two, more likely that they see a very large liquidity crisis that if it is managed, the banks and uh, the loans they've made to the huge corporate debt bubble that we have found ourselves in because of quantitative easing in the earlier times um, is ready to implode. And what we will have then is not just the effects of this pandemic and the disaster economically that it will be because millions and millions of people are unable to work, but also the collapse of the corporations that would employ them if they were able to get back to work. And make no mistake, uh, we are in something entirely unprecedented. Pandemic aside, what is happening in the financial world and the economy globally is worse than the 2008 financial crisis. And the next couple of days and weeks, they're going to be very interesting, even regardless of, of what's happening with infections. What happens with quarantines, what happens with explosions and testing as we realize just how many people are sick and in the magnitude of what happens when those people are sick. So earlier I was talking about all these people who traveled right now because things are cheap and because they're selfish. Well, we're going to have to pay the consequences of those selfish acts in the next week and a half, two weeks, as those people get sick, as they spread their disease. And as they start getting sick enough, they have to occupy the, the meager amount of ICU beds, respirators available in this country. New York today announced that they need federal assistance by the National Guard and uh, Army Corps of Engineers to build more hospitals. Because here in New York City, a city of over 8 million people, we have 600 free ICU beds currently. So you, you can go ahead and do the math. If 15 to 20% of these cases require hospitalization and 5% of all cases require not just ICU, but respirators, that is something that can very quickly overwhelm these hospitals and make that death rate climb from an optimistic 0.6 to 2% to a realistic 3% to something approaching Italy's 7 to 10% and beyond. So what we're seeing really is a one-two punch. And these are extraordinary times, which require extraordinary measures from not just government, from not just corporations, but also us as individuals. And um, so there's, there's two more things I want to point out, Daniel. I know I've been rambling. Once again, this, this stuff has me going. Um, one is that what I've seen somebody, I don't know if they mentioned it to me or I saw it online, um, but they called it the doomsayer's paradox. 
I don't know if that's a real term or not. I haven't bothered looking it up, but I like it. And it's something that I, I was trying to articulate earlier to some people. I don't know if I did a great job, but just a, it's just a flu crowd saying we're over-responding to this, that we're dooming ourselves economically because we're reacting so large. They're not insignificant. There's a lot of people saying this. Um, there's a, UK is operating basically their entire response coronavirus based on this idea. Um, where they fully are planning on getting 60% of their, you know, 50 million or whatever people sick with the disease in order to build herd immunity. And they are anticipating 300,000 deaths because of that. And they've just said, well, you know, that's the price we have to pay in order to protect our economy. And I think that their death estimate is optimistic, but uh, time will tell to see if the UK made the right choice. I'm going to say that it's probably the wrong choice because even if their idea is that they're going to keep the, op the economy operating by not shutting anything down. Problem with that is if the rest of the world decides to shut everything down, but UK is just like, ah, oh, whatever, we'll just have, you know, 30 million infections. Who the fuck is going to let the UK trade with them or let people enter their country or let people into the UK? No one. They're just going to isolate them and say, okay, you do your thing on your stupid island where all you people will like burn out and kill each other. And the rest of the world will solve this problem the way South Korea has, the way China has, the way that Italy, Iran, they're trying to do right now. And of course, that will kill the UK's economy even more than they already have. But back to my point is that a response that is proper will always make the event look much smaller. So if we shut everything down immediately and we stop this virus in its tracks, and only a couple thousand people get sick, a couple hundred die, then everyone will say, what, you destroyed the economy for something for just a couple thousand people? You know, like the flu kills tens of thousands of people a year. Why did you do this? What, what were you thinking? And that ignores the fact that that was a proper response to this result. Because if that response hadn't been that fast and that great, then that number, instead of a few thousand people sick and a tens and a few hundred dead, could have been millions of people sick and millions of people dead. You can only, as a, as a political leader, somebody who sets down these, these dramatic measures to contain a pandemic and to respond to it, you can only either underreact or overreact. There is no in-between. And so it's, it's, it's a huge catch-22. And unfortunately, the United States has chosen underreact. And while the it's a flu crowd feel like they're right right now, give it another two weeks and they will say, what the fuck? Why didn't you shut everything down before? And insist that they always were fans of that. So that's the doomsayers paradox, and it's something to keep in mind and tell all your stubborn relatives uh, and friends as they repeatedly tell you that, oh yeah, flu kills so many more people. Well, you know, give it three weeks. The last point I want to make here, Daniel, um, is that we are seeing all sorts of cracks in our society. These, these are the types of things that are being patched up right now by these dramatic sweeping legislative actions. So there are lots of things we talk about on this show, right? inability to pay rent, um, the, the massive homeless populations, um, the, the huge insurance problems where people's health care, they, they can't get what they need. Disasters, at least of this type, don't necessarily create cracks in society, but they expose the ones that are already there and they tear them asunder. The huge holes in our society and our social welfare and the infrastructure that we've allowed this nation to erode, oftentimes intentionally over the past many decades, are now exposed. It's easy to identify them right now and point to them and say, why the fuck are we doing this? But 
it's going to be harder for us to actually seize these and fix them. So, I mean, look here in New York City. Uh, we have delayed shutting down schools, though, as of recording, they're finally going to be shut down tomorrow because there are hundreds of thousands of students who depend on the school for breakfast, lunch, and in some cases, even dinner. Uh, there are tens of thousands of healthcare workers, first responders that are dependent upon the schools as a daycare system because they can't afford anything outside of that because uh, their jobs demand them not to be home and taking care and raising their children. These are huge cracks in the society and culture of this country, and not just this country, but countries around the world. And because of this dependence upon this crappy governmental system that we built, uh, now, suddenly, when, when that, we have to balance between risk of infection and death or you know, dooming these kids to not being able to eat, not being able to have somebody watch them, what type of society lets this get this bad in the first place? It's one of misplaced priorities. It's one where we say, oh, you know, kids can't eat. Well, you know, whatever. We'll just let, they can eat at school. What are they going to do during the summer? That's their problem. And because of this, New York City has invested in, in summer lunch programs for kids so they can still stop by the school, grab lunch, and then leave, even though they're not in session. But we shouldn't have an economic system that doesn't allow people to provide for their children. These are the types of holes in our society, in our care, that we are seeing very vividly in front of our face right now that are making it difficult for us to do the right thing, the things that would contain this type of disaster, both economically and medically. Just something to keep in mind. This is, after all, a show about cracks in civilization, David. But I want to leave just one thought, and it comes from a, a Japanese philosophy known as Kintsugi, which I might be mispronouncing, also known as Golden Journey. And it's related to wabi-sabi, a philosophy that values imperfection and transience. And in Kintsugi, it, there's this practice whereby broken pottery or, or jars are repaired by reattaching the pieces with uh, some kind of glue that, that is mixed with gold or platinum or silver. And, and the effect is something that is quite beautiful. But in terms of the philosophy, it reveals that when something is broken or when there are cracks in something, it doesn't mean that it's no longer valuable. It doesn't mean that it's, it's to be cast aside. It's something to be repaired and then remembered and highlighted and emphasized so that the cracks themselves become, you know, a history of the object, something to remember. And I think that type of mindset serves us well in this time where the cracks in our civilization are becoming wider and wider and perhaps so wide that we will see parts of our society collapse and break apart. And this is an opportunity, an opportunity to mend the cracks, to repair our broken society and make it more beautiful than it once was, while still holding in our minds and in our teachings and in our own philosophies the history of why those cracks occurred. Why did we permit a few men to control the world? Why did we allow a, a handful of individuals to control more wealth than 90% of the population? Why did we allow our lives to be reoriented by corporate interests? Why did we give up our freedoms? Why did we give up our voices? And why did we allow ourselves to drift away from our connection to land, to people, our shared histories, 
and common interests? That's a question that will take lifetimes and generations to answer. But the process of answering them, mending those cracks, and building something beautiful for the future can start today. Just a thought to carry us forward into next week's episode. A lot to think about, Daniel. And a lot to do. As always. Especially this week. You can find all sorts of COVID-19 resources, uh, a lot of that mutual aid information. I will post to our website as well as a full transcript of our episodes and the rest of our content at ashesashes.org. I'm also going to attach a resource to the show notes that I thought about when you were talking about meet your neighbor, be a part of your community, some resources on how to value your, your community, how to take inventory of the assets around you. And one idea when you meet your neighbors is to do capacity inventories, which is where you sit down with someone and you have a list that you've created beforehand, but you go back and forth and you ask each other, you know, what are you good at? What are your skills? What are you available to do? What, are you, what do you desire? Are you good at repairing plumbing fixtures? Are you good at construction? Are you good at watching kids? And what do you need? And that way you can kind of formalize these skills and gifts and talents of the people around you so that in this moment of crisis, when it's hard to get services from a company, let's say, you know that your next door neighbor is capable of X, Y, and Z, and you have A, B, and C to offer them. But all that aside, um, this show is community supported. We are 100% listener funded. We will never accept advertising. So if you like this show and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, or supporting us on patreon.com slash ashesashescast. We also have an email address, which you referenced earlier, David. It is contact at ashesashes.org. Send us your thoughts. We read them and we appreciate them. Also, big shout out to associate producer and friend of the podcast, John Fitzgerald. Thank you so much. We also have a phone number that you can call to leave us an awesome voicemail. Tell us about your coronavirus experiences. Tell us about how you are getting involved in your community or anything else that you find interesting or important. The number for that is 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-7437. Give us a call. But if you're not the type to talk on the phone, and let's be honest, which of us are, you can reach out to us on all sorts of social media at Ashes Ashes Cast. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. Uh, reach out to us. But if none of that wets your whistle, well, then we have the best online community that exists via our Discord. And you can find an invitation to that community on our website. Just go to community, discord, ashesashes.org. Next week, we're back to deep dives. Uh, we're talking about something that is very relevant right now, Daniel, to these cracks in civilization and to our responses to them, though in a very formal and uh, business-like way, and that is the wide world of insurance. Sounds boring, but believe me, there's a lot to dissect there. So we hope you'll tune in for that, and we hope you'll be healthy and well and connected to your community. Sounds like a risky topic, Dave. Well, Daniel, as always, it's a calculated risk. We hope you'll tune in then. Bye. Bye-bye.